You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of SD Times. And now, here's Jacob Lukowitz, online and social media editor at SD Times. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about Web3 and the future of data portability. Web3's fundamental improvements to data portability and user authentication enable new experiences. With me to talk about it today is Reed McGinley-Stemple, CEO and co-founder of Stitch, an authentication platform for developers. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. Great. So to start off, can you tell me what are some of the key differences in data portability in Web2 versus Web3? I think one maybe helpful architectural piece to talk about with Web3 is obviously there's a lot of jargon and buzzwords that get thrown around. But uh, if you think about the big differences between like Web3 and Web1 or Web2, one common popular uh, explanation you'll hear is that Web1 was very focused on read-only data. So you'd go to a static website, you'd look at a blog post, everybody got served the same blog post. Uh, Web2 is kind of distinguished by read-write access. So you could also publish content. Um, The other thing I would kind of add to that is you'd also access dynamic data when you'd log into apps, which is kind of the reason that we needed user accounts in the first place in Web2. Uh, And then Web3, you'll sometimes hear the term read, write, own. Uh, And what people mean by own is that you own various elements um, of kind of how you interact with things in Web3. Obviously, you can own kind of the basic coins and tokens. And under tokens, you can have things like non-fungible tokens, which show you own this digital attestation of, you know, whether that's a piece of art or something more like an identity uh, factor on the user. And I think the other thing that's helpful to think about own, or at least that I think is important, is... There's in Web3, there's no need if you want to share your data um, from an application that you've used, there's no need for you to hope that that application sets up an OAuth server in the future. Something like, you know, what Google does where you can share certain data from your Google account. You can house uh, that the verification method on your Web3 wallet or account uh, in order to unlock that you own this account. And then somebody else can actually see what's on chain about that end user, such as the identity traits that they have through non-fungible tokens that they own, uh, the applications that they've used in the past, such as OpenSea, et cetera. Uh, And so it definitely makes portability far easier. And we can go into more details on what that looks like. It does obviously introduce some other kind of questions around things like privacy. Um, There's a big question around like usability and ease of use, but data portability itself is pretty fundamentally different. I see. Right. So do you think that all these changes would kind of reduce people's concern about their data being collected and used without their permission? I think being collected and used without your permission is still going to be something that I would hope Web3 strives to minimize and Mm -hmm. reduce. I don't think it solves that. Um, I think what it solves on the data portability piece is if you think about how I operate today in a primarily Web2 world, there are some really nice ergonomics around data portability that have been invented. And, you know, I think one that I use a lot that maybe you use a lot as well is sign in with Google. Um, Because not only can sign in with Google allow me to verify myself, I can also share information like my name, my verified email address. Uh, If I really want to, with a particular application like Calendly, I can share my calendar data. Uh, If I really want to, with an application like Superhuman, which is an email client, Um, on top of Gmail, I can uh, share my actual like email data itself. Mm -hmm. And so I do think like that permissioning structure is really important if you share data. The thing that I get really excited about on the Web3 front 
is that in that Web2 model, you do have some really interesting innovations when it comes to data sharing from companies like the Googles of the world. The problem is if you think about all of the data that we emit as end users, and not all of it's useful, but I would say actually Google probably has one of the most interesting troves of data on myself. Um, they probably would know me better than a therapist, uh, maybe <laughs> even than a doctor, based on things that I search for, things that, you know, how I uh, inter interact with my browser, the search engine, um, my email account. Uh, they might know, notice if I'm having like a mental decline due to, you know, some issue at a future age based on the language I use in email and chat and things like that. And the reason I mentioned that is that those are the pieces that today in Web2, there's not really a reason for applications to expose them as user scopes, like data scopes that you can share in order for someone else to give you an application um, use case on top of it. And so I think from like a consent perspective, that always needs to be there. What I get really excited about is what if you didn't just have the ability to share the data fields that a large company like Google thinks makes sense for their product? But also from, you know, the data exhaust that you create across the internet, um, as long as you decide to provision it elsewhere, you could in order to get other benefits, other insights um, into your life, et cetera. Um, and there's definitely some, you know, some interesting use cases. Like what, I'll give you one very tangible use case because I do think it's hard to reason about Web3 and kind of an abstract. Right. Um, but one, one use case that's interesting is, have you heard of the uh, marketplace called OpenSea in Web3? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. And so, and, and so that's become the most popular way for people to buy and sell uh, NFTs on the Ethereum network. I think they also support the Solana blockchain as well now. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's clearly grown into the largest marketplace, kind of like an early eBay or something for, you know, exchanging these digital items. Right. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting is that when you actually buy or sell uh, a digital item on OpenSea, you're interacting with their smart contract. Because uh, that's how they actually, you know, execute the trade. And that smart contract is on chain, which means if you can verify that you own a wallet that was engaged in that smart contract, you can prove that you are a user of OpenSea. And you can also share different stats about your usage, like how much did you pay in fees? How many listings did you buy or sell? And the reason I think that becomes interesting is if you think about user incentives on the web and, you know, switching costs as an end user. It is really high friction today um, if you have a data graph with a company and you want to switch to a competitor. So think about this like Facebook. There's probably never or not for a long time going to be a direct competitor uh, to Facebook that pops up because there's so much of your data graph that's tied um, and not exposable from the end user side. But from an open sea perspective, what's interesting is somebody actually launched a competitive uh, product um, in the end of 2021 that actually would allow you to connect your wallet, uh, look at your application usage of OpenSea and incentivize you to start using this other marketplace. And so you, you start getting these really interesting things where like businesses are forced to compete at the margins at a higher level because network effects don't go away, but they do get minimized if now it's one-click one -click data portability for me to move my data graph versus asking a user to go fill out forms, go through you know an hour-long onboarding process. And just frankly, most end users um, don't even like to go through a password reset, which is like two to three minutes and yeah. a few clicks. Right. Yeah, that's all really interesting. Would you like to go into more about what were some of the challenges and what are some of the challenges currently with you know having effective data portability? Yeah, so I think the other thing that... Um, 
it's helpful for kind of explaining the vantage point that myself, my co-founder, and some other people here on the team uh, at the company Stitch, uh, where that we founded, a lot of us came from a company called Plaid. Um, and Plaid, uh, other developers might be or might not be familiar with, but Plaid is a, a you know a quite large fintech API that makes it simple for you to connect your bank account to a financial application. So think about when you connect your bank account to Venmo, Coinbase, Robinhood, Truebill, et cetera. Uh, Plaid's really under the hood in all those use cases uh, as the common API interface with 10,000 banks. And my co-founder and I actually worked on the authentication team there. And so you're commonly thinking about how do I make it both secure for an end user to connect their bank account, um, but also how do I increase conversion so that uh, you know, that was how Plaid monetized, but it also is really important to the true bills of the world that you reduce their acquisition cost so that they weren't, you know, dropping off 50% of users at bank account linkage because they forgot their password. Um, and so I give that context because one of the things that was disappointing to me in seeing how a lot of Web2 companies operate, and this is obviously a little bit pronounced on the bank side, in my opinion, but a lot of the banks were not super eager to allow users to port their data to a competitive product. And from a business perspective, I think you can understand that, right? The banks wanted to retain their competitive advantage, which to them, they felt was the fact that it's really hard for that user to endure the switching cost of trying a new challenger. So for example, I still use a legacy bank account because there's a lot of friction involved with me fully migrating to one of these challenger banks even if I think they have a better UI, UX, some more interesting features that are more consumer friendly. Um, and that's even with the fact that I paid you know, $10 for an ACH transfer the other day to my bank. And I thought it was crazy, but I didn't want to go through the friction of trying to figure out how to port all of my data, my like payment data, my billing data, um, my transactional data, et cetera, to a new account. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons you run into that issue is that uh, one of the other issues you run with run into with that is you're dependent in the Web2 world on that third party that has that data store for the user of exposing uh, OAuth so that they actually want to allow a user to share that data uh, with another application. And then they get to control who's allowed to sign up for that OAuth connection. And so it would make sense that maybe the Bank of Americas and the Chases and the Wells Fargo and the PNC banks and the Capital Ones of the world are not super thrilled to allow a user uh, to connect their bank account to a competitor. And so that's one of the things that I found so interesting in the Web3 space is that we saw so much drop off from users having a high friction, just even like username and password to connect their bank account via Plaid's APIs to these financial apps, that it's really compelling to us to think about how does it change business models, what's possible on the web, if that friction effectively goes to zero, because now it's one click to to share your data. Uh, with another application, and you're sharing that data via that one click with MetaMask or Phantom or Coinbase Wallet, whichever non-custodial wallet you're using to interact with Web3. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you feel that you know when Web3 comes on, is it going to be kind of like a definitive change um, that, that, that goes you know within a short period of time, or is it going to require a steady change to kind of get to some of the things that you've been describing? It's definitely a, a steady change. Um, I think like, I'll tell you a few of the bigger kind of drawbacks I see in the current Web3 space for Web3 wallets is that, I don't know if you've set up a MetaMask before or one of these other non-custodial wallets, but yeah. if you have, you've noticed it's really high friction to even just like enter the Web3 world today. So it's very low friction once you're in it to move your data, but it's very high friction to actually get over the barrier right. of 
kind of like onboarding yourself because there's a couple of things that happen to end users that's really confusing. The first is that you introduce a completely novel concept of a seed phrase, um, which this is, you know, how you derive their private key. Uh, and you're trying to abstract away the private key, but instead what we've created is a user signs up for MetaMask, they get asked to remember this 12 to 24 word uh, seed phrase, store it somewhere really securely, maybe put it in the security deposit box or a password manager. And already you're you know, creating a lot of anxiety for new users that are just interested about this space. Um, the right. other thing is that all of these uh, Web3 wallets today, they have local only passwords that allow you to start the session on the Web3 wallet. And so it turns on your head everything people know about passwords in 2022, which is we've primarily been taught that even though passwords are, you know, maybe not great from a security or conversion or UX perspective, at least they're portable across like my mobile device and my desktop device. And that's not the case with Web3 wallets. And so just for context, one of the big things actually, um, Stitch, our company has been working on over the last couple quarters is creating new ways to derive private keys that can still distract a lot of the work that allows a user to have this compatible Web3 account, but that feels like a familiar Web2 interface. So you're not trying to educate them. Mm -hmm. And so that's the biggest hurdle I see to this. You know, this, this is why I think it has been steady adoption. It's actually been quite good adoption. If you think about it right now, there are 32 million monthly active users with MetaMask. That's 32 million people that we've effectively onboarded to you know, public and private keys. Um, and that's really interesting in terms of what that unlocks from kind of an account authentication security um, and potential uh, potential future capabilities. And if you compare that 32 million, there's only a handful of million that use the uh, one password Chrome extension. And so I, I think about that as like very um, encouraging that people are interested enough in what's there. But I'd still say the biggest issue is that it's pretty hard to onboard. So those 32 million MAUs uh, for MetaMask, they went through a lot of friction to figure out what does this mean, Web3? And I think you won't see this really go mainstream until that can feel like something that you could onboard your parents or your uncle or even your grandparents to. So uh, what suggestions do you have for uh, the way that developers should be looking towards developing for Web3? Yeah, so some of the ways that I think I'm already starting to see gradual um, kind of acknowledgement of Web3 authentication and identity in the Web2 space is that, uh, for example, we launched at our company, a couple products called Login with Ethereum and Login with Solana uh, wallets uh, over the last quarter. And so what that means is that if you wanted to, you could have login, login or sign up with MetaMask next to sign up with Google or sign up with Apple. Um, and that's one use case that we found popular. But I think the more gradual one that we've seen is that there are a lot of Web2 companies that are interested in, you know, if users are voluntarily creating this rich data graph and we could give them you know, some particular incentive or unlock some feature because they hold some trait in their wallet. So maybe you know, I'm Spotify and I want to say that you know, if you have this NFT of this particular artist that they minted, um, you're able to get early access to their songs. Uh, what would that look like if even if I didn't change my user model and my account structure, I still had kind of the normal sign up and login flow? Um, what if I allowed those users that are Web3 interested or curious to also link their MetaMask or their Phantom so that we can inspect and verify that they do own that NFT and then they can get early access to that artist music or some other feature. Um, and that's something that actually we've seen a lot of interesting demand on on the Web2 side, which is I don't think immediately you're going to see all these Web2 sites start allowing login with Ethereum or login with Solana next to Apple. I think instead what you'll see is for the portion of users 
that they're interested in catering to that are Web3 interested, they'll allow them to enrich their user data profile. Um, and that's something, obviously, we support kind of both sides of the Web2 and Web3 auth space here at Stitch. But that's kind of what I would I would flag for developers that are maybe mindful of Web3, but not like diving in, is that I do think you're going to continue to see many more use cases that think about this enrichment, uh, sorry, this enrichment experience on the user profile. Um, for example, even Shopify put out a beta um, a few months ago about allowing you to access certain merchant sites um, only if you had a certain NFT uh, in your uh, in your wallet that you connected. And I'm not sure if that's still in beta or if that's actually been released, but I think you will see a lot of companies starting to tinker with that idea because now that you've started reaching these numbers of you know, 30 million plus MetaMask users, uh, we're probably around 5 million or so uh, Phantom users, which is the most popular Solana wallet. Um, I think you're going to quickly see that there is actual market demand in serving those users. And then there's also developer interest in what are the unique experiences I can actually build that were not possible in a Web2 space because I couldn't have someone bring that attested data over to their user profile and they weren't incentivized to go through, you know, reams of forms and fields uh, in order to uh, pass that data over to us. All right. Well, thank you for all of your great insight, Reed. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add about Web3 and how authentication is going to change? You know, um, I think we're super excited about the space. Um, if people are curious about learning more, whether they're excited, skeptical, whatever, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're at stitch.com, S-T-Y-T-C-H. Uh, we both have uh, kind of like our core platform is Web2 authentication products. So think like biometrics, OAuth, magic links, SMS passcode, session management, et cetera. Uh, but we do have those Web3 features like logging with Ethereum, logging with Solana. And I think the thing I'm most excited about on kind of Web3 user onboarding is you're going to see some really interesting approaches to new private key derivation that make it much more accessible uh, to users in the future. And we'll actually be announcing something there in a few weeks as well. Okay, great. Well, it looks like that's all the time we have for today's show. And I want to thank you again, Reed, for coming on. Thanks for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Be sure to check out all of our weekly episodes on your favorite podcast listening platform. Till next time, this has been What the Dev. 